This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, everyone it's time once again for evidence for faith this is the christian evidences and world worldview radio program where we actually give you the evidence not only shows that christianity is true but we explain the benefits of christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing hello everyone i'm dr mike larrakis i'm keith kendricks and today we're going to be talking about the divinity of christ we also have another expert apologist with us today keith that we'll be interviewing uh, shortly, but uh, I know that you have a newsworthy item that you wanted to share with our listening audience first. Yeah, I had a really good time yesterday up in Philadelphia at an apologetics conference. It was put on by Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, and they had some really good speakers, including one of our old friends, Dr. John Sanford. If you remember, Mike, we did an interview with Dr. Sanford. He is an expert uh, geneticist, and I recall that he um, uh, developed the gene gun, where they could actually splice genes and uh, create new uh, new types of hybrid crops. That's right. He's a really brilliant man and expert in his field, highly respected, uh, is associated with Cornell University, and is a born-again Christian, and talks about the genetics of intelligent design and how evolution is not a possibility because the genome the information within human beings is decaying. Yes, we call it devolution. It's actually devolving. And yes, folks, that is a real word. Evolution is not happening. We're losing information as man proceeds on this journey through time. That's right. So he went through all that evidence again uh, with this audience about how the genome, the information in the DNA is decaying away and human beings will eventually go extinct just as all animals eventually will go extinct unless God brings the world to an end some other way. But if you'd like to hear his talk, we actually interviewed him back uh, two years ago. So if you go to iTunes or you go to the website, evidenceforfaith.com, you can listen to the interview with Dr. John Sanford and uh, get all that information. Another speaker was Dr. Norm Geisler. I hope People listening know who he is. Dr. Norm Geisler has been an apologist for probably 30 years or more. Excellent. And he spoke about divine inerrancy. So that was a really interesting talk. Uh, fabulous, experienced apologist who's probably written dozens and dozens of books. The next talk was then by Ron Rhodes, who is a cult expert. So if you have issues with Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, and you'd like to find out uh, how to deal with those uh, people, then I recommend any books by Ron Rhodes. And he talked about ten, 10 keys to answering cultists at your door. And it, was a, it was good. We actually might do a show on that and cover some of the material that he talked about because he gave a lot of practical advice for how to answer the cult person that comes to your door. Uh, then a really fascinating talk, this one by Ergen Kainer, who is a Muslim who is converted to Christianity. And he did a talk called The Secret of Islam. 
And I found this very fascinating because I've noticed this myself. I've noticed that there are a lot of similarities between Islam and Mormonism. And I always thought that Joseph Smith may have copied some of his religious ideas from Islam. Well, Ergen Kainer went over a huge amount of data of all the similarities. And so the secret to Islam is that Islam is a medieval Mormonism. Really fascinating. All the way, you know, from things like the tablets or the information, the, the revelation coming from an angel. You know, in the Mormon's case, it's Moroni. And in Islam, it's Gabriel. Through all kinds of things, the way they deal with the, the Pentateuch, the way they deal with Christianity. You know, very, very similar. So it was, it was uh, really fascinating. Things like no alcohol, the works method of getting into heaven, all kinds of similarities. So that was really fascinating talk. Then I think the last two, really good. This was by Dr. Craig Evans. Are the Gospels reliable? And he is a New Testament expert, PhD. Really did a fantastic job reviewing all of the dates for the different Gospels and looked at the possibility of the Gnostics, where do they fit in? And of course, he confirmed everything that we've said on this show. You know, we do try to get our data from the real experts, the PhDs, and bring it down to the common person. So uh, we were right spot on the money. There was something really interesting that was new that I thought people would like to know about, and that there is a New Testament expert who's an agnostic. His name is James Crosley, just recently finished some research on the book of Mark, in which he is showing that the book of Mark was written in the 40s. Wow. Yeah. That that's is early a, on. That's a really much earlier than the critics will allow, and he shows that it's because of the way that the law is treated in Mark's gospel. And one of the ways that they know attitudes of people change during the first century, they can put it down decade by decade as their attitudes towards the law changed. And so he was able to pinpoint that change, and he was able to show how Mark's gospel matches the 40s. So you're saying that Mark's gospel was written roughly eight to ten years after Christ was crucified. That's right, five to ten years. Earlier than previously thought. No, uh, decades. Sixties. Decades earlier, five to ten years after the crucifixion, yeah. so or the resurrection. So that was really exciting. And then the last talk was by Dr. Stephen Collins, who's an archaeologist. He did a great talk about his digs. For the past six years, he has been digging at the site that they are now firmly convinced is Sodom and Gomorrah. Amazing things they found. He went over the biblical references and how they know that this is the location. It's in the alluvial plain or the, the area of the valley that's watered by the Jordan River. This is prime real estate. It is the best agricultural land for the entire region. And you know from the Bible story, when Abraham and Lot decided to split apart, Lot looked over and saw that land and said he wanted that land. So he took that land. It was the best land. It was suddenly destroyed in the Middle Bronze period and never inhabited again for 600 years. In fact, it wasn't inhabited again until, you remember when the Israelites came through and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan? 
that's why they wanted to stay because this was absolutely prime agricultural land. So they stayed right there. The dig so far has found some amazing things. The bricks of those times, the buildings were all built in mud bricks that were not fired. Yet the bricks that are on the, la the layer right before the destruction layer, they're all like porcelain. They've all been fired after the buildings were built. They showed the body that they found of a male essentially chopped off at the thigh bones, the, from the mid thigh all the way down completely intact. At the thigh, it's charred bones is all that is remaining. And then scattered pieces of bone in the area are the rest of the body. Um, pieces of pottery that their experts say were fired after they were created. During the destruction, they were hit by 20,000 degrees for two seconds. It's almost like a, a thermonuclear blast. Exactly. That's the only thing that even compares. One other type of speculation is that there's a, a type of meteorite that can explode and, and causes the destruction without actually making an impact because uh, there is no impact crater. So there is meteorite glass, the sand in the area turned to meteorite glass. Again, talking incredibly high heats that can melt sand, but no meteorite impact. So some kind of incredible destruction hit and destroyed 10 cities, the biggest cities in the area at the time. In fact, at that time, Sodom was 12 times bigger than Jericho and 15 times bigger than Jerusalem. So large cities, the place where the traffic caravans, the, the merchant caravans would come through, they stopped right there, all of a sudden wiped out for 600 years. So terrific confirmation of the Bible's story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Keith, what is actually the name of this location uh, as we speak? Is there a name that they have attached to the uh, location where this dig is happening? Right now it's called Tel El Hamam, but Prior to uh, it's that name, in the time of Moses, it, I'm looking for the name in my notes, I don't see it, but, uh, oh, it was called Abel, which meant place of mourning. So for the 600 years that it was empty, it was called Abel, the place of mourning. So nobody would inhabit that area out of uh, respect for the people that burned and died. Or fear. Or fear, yeah. Yeah. So even though it was prime real estate, it was not until the Israelites came back. That so Keith, if, if we have some... Um, people in our listening audience who are interested in an archaeological dig, is there a chance that they might be able to join a doctor on this uh, dig? Absolutely. In fact, he gave an invitation out to anybody who would like to. They're going to be digging again from uh, January, February, and March. So if you'd like to go, you, of course, have to pay your own way. But you pay your own way, and that actually helps provide a little bit of money for the operations of the dig. And just go to digsodom.com. D-I-G-S-O-D-O-M.com, and you can sign up and go help with the dig at Sodom. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And you can visit the website at Evidence for Faith. That's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. And also realize that we have a complete library uh, that's stocked with podcasts now, Keith, for almost three years. That's right. It's been uh, three years that we've been on the show and uh, have most of those things archived. Uh, you can go to uh, iTunes and access them or to the website. Um, you can uh, also reach us at uh, Facebook, and uh, you can also email us at 
evidenceforfaith.com. That's right. Email at evidenceforfaith.com. Correct. Um, so today, we're going to be talking about the divinity of Christ, and uh, it's nice to have um, uh, two master's level apologists on either side of me. We and have a guest today. Yes, we do. And uh, what we're going to do is introduce Kevin Harold, who has a uh, master's uh, degree in apologetics from Luther Rice University. Hello, Kevin. Hello, gentlemen. Good afternoon. Good Welcome to have you. To the show. Good to have you on the show, Kevin. Well, thank you. So, tell us a little bit about you. Um, I like to describe myself uh, presently as a professional button pusher. Uh, well, more correctly, I guess you could say I manage computers. Those computers just happen to be all located on an airplane. Unlike what Hollywood betrays, uh, being an airline pilot is actually pretty boring. A lot of time sit around doing nothing. Uh, quite tedious, except for maybe 5% of the time. It can be a little exciting going into New York, uh, L.A., or just this week I went into uh, D.C. We landed to the south and came down the river at night, and uh, the Lincoln Memorial and Washington Monument were all lit up. We went right by it. And at those times, I think, man, I got a great job. You do. That's, uh, that sounds like an interesting job. So how did you transition from airline pilot into uh, apologetics? Well, I actually did both at the same time because being an airline pilot, you spend a lot of time sitting waiting. And Luther Rice had an excellent program that you can do online, and that allowed me time to read and to prepare and do the homework. And with my ever-faithful laptop, uh, that's how I got into the apologetics section academically. Now, why I got into apologetics, uh, that's quite a different story, and uh, I don't know what time will allow, but maybe another time we could get into that discussion of why I got into apologetics. Well, if you, if you, if you can tell it briefly, I'd love to hear it, because for me, I got into apologetics because that's how I became a Christian, mm. was through the apologetic witness of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Mm. So I loved apologetics from the beginning. So what, what turns you on to apologetics? Which, for our listeners, apologetics simply means the defense of the Christian faith. Right. Uh, my story would probably be the antithesis of that, just the complete opposite. I was already a Christian. I had a vibrant Christian life for 15 years or so. The Word of God was alive to me. I had feedback when I prayed. It, it was just uh, a technical aviation term, we call it. It was just peachy. And <laughs> something slowly started to happen. I started, I don't know exactly why, started to get doubts. Uh -huh. These doubts started to grow. Questions, does God really exist? Mm -hmm. uh, if He really exists, why is He so distant? And these doubts and skepticism continued to grow, and I just couldn't sit around and do nothing. So I decided to try to attack each area to resolve them. And I got the, one of the first books I remember getting was Josh McDowell's um, Evidence for Man's yeah. Verdict. And uh, I did read that, and it was not an easy read in the sense of it requires effort and concentration. So you could say uh, it was an act of almost desperation, spiritual desperation. And it has yielded gold ever since, just immeasurable. 
So you're happy you did that. So you you got some books, you read some books on apologetics, and then you decided to go ahead and get a degree. Actually, getting the degree is like 15, 16 years after the start of that process. Mm -hmm. Getting some books would be an understatement, much <laughs> to my wife's uh, patience. I have tons of books, and I've tried to read them. But back then, without academic discipline, I was more or less floundering around. Yet, even in that state of amateurness, if I might say, some great things came out of that just by reading books. Rabbi Zacharias, R.C. Sproul, Norm Geisler. I mean, these guys could put it in everyday language, which right. is one of the reasons I love C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. because he speaks the language that I'm used to. Right. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, maybe we can back up a little bit then. I'd love to hear how you came to know Christ in the first place. Much like, I think, maybe a lot of people's experience, something unhappy turns something good. I lost my mother to cancer, and after a while my father decided to start dating again, and he brought home this uh, woman that he met at work, and the fact that it was my father, my brother, and myself, I'm sure the ladies in the audience can just imagine what state the house was in. <laughs> so she would come. How old were you? I was 16, I think, at the time. And she would come, and she would, the best thing for me was she would cook. But as she was stirring the pot, she was stirring the heart and the mind of a young man. She shared Christ with me. And before that time, I was more or less under the impression that it was the weighty scale effect. Right. Uh, when I died, I had to and all my other bad deeds. Right. And she came in with that radical idea that it's not about making sure you have enough good deeds, but it's making sure you have enough of the one who obliterates all the bad deeds. And I and went who's to, that? And that would be Jesus Christ. Who's who we're gonna be talking about today. Yes. Yeah, we are we're actually gonna be talking about the divinity of Christ. And you know, Kev, as I was listening to your little testimony, it struck a chord with me because I too lost my mother to a brain tumor at the age of eighteen. So and I, I've always said that something good came out of that because that's when I went into medicine and became an internist uh, because of that. Um, and Kirk Hastings, who's also co-chair of this uh, radio show, lost his mother to cancer. So we have that, that similar um, yes. impetus that, that yes. thrust us into the arena uh, of Christianity. So the broken heart can be mended by the only one that can heal the heart and change the heart. And we're talking about the deity of Christ. God does bring good out of the evil around us. Indeed. So anyway, Keith, I, I'd like to start that little tidbit on the deity of Christ with a comment. And I'd like to hear your take on, uh, on it, and right. not only yours, but also Kevin's. I'm going to make a pretty, pretty bold claim here. Jesus in one person is both truly God and truly man. Now, is that comment mutually exclusive? Can you explain that from a spiritual point of view? Well... It's very precisely worded, and this is taken from some of the creeds. The early creeds were very careful to word this right. In fact, you'll actually hear it a little bit off. Sometimes you'll hear people will say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Well, that actually implies that if you're fully God, then you're full up with God. You're, you're, 
you're full. So it doesn't make any sense that you could be full of God and then and also full of man. That so that doesn't really make sense. So the church fathers are actually very careful to say that Jesus is truly God and truly man. That is that there's no part of him that was not man. You know, he didn't he didn't have a man's body without a man's soul or man's personality. You know, he was totally man and also truly God. He was divine. So he had two natures but was one person. So not a contradiction because remember a contradiction you would have to be two different things in the same way like like two persons and one person because that would be a contradiction or two natures while being one nature. That's a contradiction that cannot be possible. It's illogical. But God is true uh, Jesus is truly God and truly man, two natures in one person, not a contradiction. Kevin, you want to make any comments on that? Uh? Uh, in my systematic theology class, professor brought up a point about this uh, idea of understanding and that sometimes it could be a misperception in that when Jesus was born in the flesh, that at that moment he was made truly God and truly man. But the professor pointed out that since Christ existed from all eternity, that it's more accurate in his way of phrasing it to say that Christ had his humanity added to his divinity. Right. And that, yes, truly God and truly man. Yeah, because it would imply a change otherwise if uh, he was divine before and then he became like half divine, half man. Yes. Uh, would imply that he changed, but he, the human nature is added to the divine nature, so the divine nature doesn't change. It remains unchanging, as we talked about in last week's show, in the attributes of God, or I guess that was two weeks ago. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to bring this up for discussion right at the outset of the show is that, uh, you know, as a, a man of science and a man of medicine, uh, I always had a problem with this concept. And many people and, do. And, exactly. And I also had a problem with the concept of the Trinity, Father, mm. Son, Holy Spirit. And I have to share with you one of the things that struck me, uh, just looking at the, the, the laws of physics and chemistry, that really, really uh, hit a chord with me. And that has to do with the three-in-one concept, or the triple point. And I've, I've talked about this before on the show, Keith, that you can have water coexisting simultaneously in three states in a solid form, a liquid form, and a vapor form in a special condition where there's certain pressure and a certain temperature. Mm. Okay, now, that's called triple point. Now, you know, if you look at the, the Trinity and you put God at the top of the triangle and uh, the Son at the one lower triangle corner and the, the Spirit at the other corner, uh, the same can be uh, used with water, you know, in both the solid, liquid, and vapor form. Because you can have one form go to the other. Let's say you have solid ice going to vapor form, we call that sublimation in chemistry, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, or you could have a more rapid where you heat it and it becomes water, the ice turns to water and then it evaporates. But the point is, is that you can have water go from a solid to a liquid or a vapor state in any number of ways in the physical world. So I'm talking about physical science, physical chemistry, physics, because that's the, the background that I come from. Right. And you guys have that spiritual background, so I'm just trying to share this with the listening audience, that if you are still in the box of I need to see it, I need to touch it, I need to feel it, I need to taste it, this is it. It's called triple point. And there are many, many things in, in chemistry 
that can exist in three different phases simultaneously. Right. So all I had to do was take that, that physical fact and say, well, you know what? If that can happen in real life, it can happen in the spiritual world. And Excellent. you know what? God created water. God created the earth. God created it so it can be. Right. Well, we're going to be talking about the divinity of Christ because this is an area that is really under attack today. Mm -hmm. Many people want to say that Jesus was just a man, that he was just a good teacher. At a church that I used to attend, we had a young man grew up in our church, and he is now involved with a cult where they don't believe that Jesus is divine. And so we do need to know the teachings of Christianity. Remember, we've been doing a series now on the Christian worldview, and the Christian worldview is built up on the foundation of its theology, how it answers the questions about, is there a God? If there is a God, what's he like? So this is part of the explanation of what God is like. And one of the things that we have learned is that God has spoken to the human race through his son, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man. So what I thought we should do is take a look at some of the verses that tell us specifically that Jesus is God. Now, there are not many verses where Jesus is actually called God. And part of the problem is because when the Jews talked about God and used the Greek term theos, what they meant was God the Father. So for them to say Jesus is theos, this poses a bit of a problem because it sounds like you're saying Jesus is the Father. And of course, they didn't think that. So the New Testament apostles were a little bit reluctant to use the word theos, but we do have several verses where he is specifically called Theos. Most of the time he's called Lord, and this was a special use of the word Lord because in the Septuagint, which had been, which was the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek prior to the time of Jesus, and it was the Old Testament that Jesus used, the name of God was not transcribed. Instead, they used Lord, okay, as a placeholder for the word God, because there's, if you know anything about Judaism, you know that they very much respect God's name, and they didn't even want to write it. So they would actually use the word Lord as a placeholder. When the apostles came to write the New Testament, they used that word Lord to describe Jesus. So they deliberately were using a word which was a placeholder for God, and they used it to describe Jesus because they wanted to reserve the Greek word theos for God the Father. Mm. So let's take a look at some of those verses. You know, one of the, uh, the verses that comes to mind, uh, Keith, right off the bat, is out of Luke 2, verse 52, where, it, where uh, Luke describes Jesus' human weaknesses and limitations. And, and Luke said this, he said, And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So here you have Luke describing Jesus in human form, really, growing in stature and in wisdom. And, of course, at the age of 32 or thereabouts, uh, had the baptism of the Holy Spirit and started his, his ministry here on earth. That's right. So there are a lot of verses we could point to that he was truly man. Jesus wept. He was a real, he was a real man. And this was the thing that it's funny because people who are critics of the New Testament want to say, well, really the best gospels that were out there are the Gnostic gospels. Well, the Gnostic gospels actually didn't think that Jesus was a man. They thought that he was a divine spirit who had, an, like an apparition, who had appeared, like a demigod, actually, who had appeared on earth. 
So these people who are very materialistic and want to kind of get away from the divinity of Christ by going to the Gnostic Gospels, they actually shooting themselves in the foot um, because the Gnostic Gospels thought that Jesus was not a man. But the New Testament Gospel writers got it correct. Jesus was truly man and truly God. You know, if we look at uh, John 1.18, John says this. He says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. That's right. And that word for God there is the Greek word theos. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. I am Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And joining us as a special guest is Kevin Harold. Hello, Kevin. Hello. We're talking about the deity of Christ, and uh, if you have any uh, questions or concerns, you can actually email us. All right, we're looking at the deity of Christ. Another um, uh, quote from the Bible comes out of Romans, one of my favorite books, Keith. Romans 9, 5 says this, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. There you go. Again, another who is God over all. That's a direct attribution of Jesus as God, Theos. We can look at Philippians 2, 5 through 6, which says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You know, Keith, when I I look at that verse, I think of Christ hanging on the cross, being mocked by one of the sinners who deserved his own fate. And the mocker said to him, if you were really God, you'd get us down here. Give us a battle plan. Give us an exit strategy. And he was rebuked by his other criminal friend and said, this man has never done anything wrong. You know the story. And then Jesus says, Jesus says to him, you know, if he says, remember me when you get into paradise, Jesus said, you will be first in. So I, I love that because Jesus could have used that, that, that power Right. To launch an army of angels to get all three of them out of there, but he chose to hang for you and me. That's right. He had a bigger plan in mind. So exactly. he's like a master chess player who does a queen sacrifice in order to win the game. Mm-hmm. So he sacrificed his son, and you look at that and you think, wow, he made a mistake. God, God really messed up here. But in reality, he wins in the end. Well, that brings up the thought to me, Keith, of Colossians 2.9, where it says, For in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And to me, the key words there is fullness and lives in the sense that it's not saying the partiality of the deity, but the fullness. And how full is full? Oh, it's full, to uh, use literary uh, humor there. And they may... They may have been contradicting some of the Gnostics who thought mm. of these concepts of demigods, these right. sub-gods or these, these um, divine beings that were somehow between God and man, sort of, you know, in between angels and God. And uh, no, they were very clear to say that he was fully God, he, all the fullness of deity. So, a great verse. Titus 2.13 is another great verse. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that this used to be translated about 400 years ago when the King James Bible was written. They were actually not very familiar with the Greek grammar because Greek had only been recently rediscovered during the Renaissance. And so they only had experience with the Greek language for about the past 200 years that it was being taught at the university level. 
So this phrase in the Greek has actually been mistranslated earlier on. They would say, from the appearing of the glory of our great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So it sounds like two people are appearing, right? God's appearing and our Savior. But we now know that in reality, the Greek always means it's talking about one person. So the newer translations have it right. This is actually an attribution of deity to Jesus Christ. They're saying that Jesus Christ is the one who's appearing, that it is the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is mm. the correct translation for that, those phrases in Greek. Yeah, in Second Peter 1, 1, it sort of echoes that too, Keith, where, where Peter says this, I, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. And, you know, having walked with Christ, all of the, uh, the, the disciples and the apostles, they got to witness firsthand uh, the miracles and the, the, the divine nature that Christ projected. That's right. And, and his humility, you know. Now, some would claim that, okay, these are just the apostles later claiming divinity for Jesus. You know, they wanted to make something out of his life, and so they decided to invent this religion and let's make Jesus a God. Well, in reality, we have Jesus' own words claiming that he would answer our prayers. So in John 14, 14, we have, you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. What is that? If that is not a claim of divinity, I don't know what it is. Not only that, but Jesus fulfilled all the, uh, the, the predictions that were made in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah, he's definitely the Messiah uh, that the Old Testament talks about. Sure. Uh, one of the definitions for us as apologists is 1 Peter 3.15. You want to read that, Kev? Sure, it says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, I just want to remind you that when it says to revere Christ as Lord, it's specifically using the word Lord from the Septuagint. They are saying revere Christ as God. So that is kurios or Lord, but it's the Greek word that was used as a replacement for the term God. So they're saying revere Christ as God the Son. So you know, first, first Peter 3.15, Keith, could actually be the mission statement for this show. Because it's, uh, it's actually the verse that, that propels us to start equipping our listeners uh, and preparing them to give an account uh, to tough people asking tough questions in a very tough world. Yeah, that's right. It's amazing the confusion that's out there, and that's part of what we're doing is to defend the traditional Christian faith, the Christianity that has been believed by most Christians over most of the time, over most of the world. So just the traditional, the mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis would call it. And what, one of the problems that we have, and I had this problem as a scientist and a man of medicine, I had two false religions, and evolution is one of the reasons why we have so many young people falling away from the faith, because this is what their indoctrination is in our school systems. Yeah, it's the, it's the mythology of secular man. And, and we have a little bit of a different slant on that term evolution. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I like to, I had a real interesting 
question asked of me one time. I was at dinner with a, another couple, and my wife and I were at dinner with them. And the wife of this other couple asked, we were talking about evolution, and, and the, this woman asked, what I'm curious about is what will people be like in the future? What are we going to evolve into? And you know, C.S. Lewis actually talked about this. He talked about the new man. He talked about that really, if you think about evolution, man is evolving into a spiritual man. That this is the real change. It's what God is doing. God's creating a new type of man. He's creating a human being that is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's the real evolution. That's the real change and the change that goes on in our lives as the Holy Spirit changes us and makes us into better people. So Jesus actually made it possible for the human race to evolve to a new stage, to a new type of human being, one that is infilled and influenced and in relationship with God the Creator. That's the true evolution of man. You know what I find fascinating about this whole concept, Keith? Uh, as a physician internist, I look at the heart, mm. okay? And the heart is what gets changed. You know, one soul, one spirit, one man at a time. But just the anatomy of the heart fascinates me too. Because at the top of the heart, we have the atria, the right and left atria. And then we have the atrial appendage, or also called the oracle, which means ear. So by faith, by the, faith comes by hearing through the ear. And then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, it, he indwells in the atrium, which is a room. It's a meeting place cool. so that you can have God the Father and the Holy Spirit indwelling and meeting in the atria of each and every human heart, one heart at a time. Cool. I like that. little play on words there. Not really. I mean, that's, those are anatomical terms that were, were written in the 1600s. Right. when Harvey discovered the circulatory system. Mm -hmm. And so there's no doubt in my mind that he named them for a reason as a believer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, but I, I found that interesting, too, uh, just from the study of anatomy and, and knowing my own spirituality and, the, and human body. Very good. Well, there's another verse here that talks about what the Bible says about man. Romans 8:29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, when I teach this to Sunday school classes, I teach this as the purpose of the universe. Last week, we talked about fallen man. We talked about the problem that exists, that man is fallen, and that God did something about it. Well, this is what he was doing. He was making a new type of man making one that was going to be in the image of his son. So as human beings, our job is to become more Christ-like by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we would be brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. So that's the doctrine of, of man. We're going to be given the privilege of sharing in the divine nature of God. And, and by that, I don't mean that we're going to become omniscient. We're going to become, you know, we're going to somehow become part of the Trinity or something like that. We're not going to become all-powerful and all-knowing, nothing Hindu in there or anything like that or no, mystical. No New Age. Stuff. No New Age stuff. What I mean is that by sharing in, in the divinity of God is we're going to become in the fellowship. He wants to have communion with, with us because remember before the creation of the world, there was the communion between the Trinity. 
So there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God wasn't lonely. There was already communication and love between the Trinity. And they decided to add some love and communication with more creatures that they could make. And so they needed creatures to be like them. They needed creatures that were like Jesus. So that's our job. That's, that's what God's about in this universe. So let, let's talk a little bit about salvation, Keith. Okay, because that's the first step. If we're going to be transformed, mm -hmm. if we're going to evolve into this spiritual man that, that we're talking about, how do we know that we're saved? Well, historically, there's been two main ways that a Christian would know that they are saved. And, you know, this is a concern for many people. They're constantly concerned. Have I lost my salvation? What happens if I sin after I become a Christian? I was a Christian for five years, but then I fell away, you know, and now am I lost? Do I need to get saved again? So what I think we should do is go over, again, what the mere Christianity, just the basic doctrines that most Christians have believed over most of the time. And there are two real witnesses for a person. One is the witness of the Holy Spirit, and the second is the witness of a changed life. So the Holy Spirit actually acts as an inner witness to us. And we've got a couple of verses, Mike, if you want to read those verses, that'll help people what what that inner witness is all about. Sure. Romans 8.16 comes to mind, and uh, uh, Paul says this. He says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, once we're saved, we should know that. We should know that. We should feel it. We should sense it. We should understand that we're in communion with God and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we find ourselves being in communion with uh, other believers. So there's an inner witness that allows us to understand that we have been transformed and saved. That's right. And I was thinking of 1 John 5.10. I had a question with it for you guys. Uh, 1 John 5.10 said, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And what I was wondering the meaning of the word believes here, is it a, like a peripheral believing, like I believe in the planet Mars, or is it something more deeper? What, what well, does that word believe there mean? Yeah, absolutely. Think? It's very, it's much deeper. The Greek actually means to cling to, to hold on to, to grab a hold of. When Jesus asked people to believe in him, he just didn't mean intellectually uh, assent. He meant rely on, trust in, be loyal to. All these concepts are woven into the idea of belief in the, in the Greek here. So, you know, this actually echoes one of my uh, favorite verses in, in the book of John, and that's John chapter 3. Of course, everybody knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But I, I find John 3.17 even more powerful in that Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then John goes on to discuss that the people who didn't believe in the one and only Son have already condemned themselves right. for not believing because they chose darkness over light. Right. Really, really fascinating, very powerful chapter, John chapter 3. But it echoes this First John 5.10 verse uh, that uh, uh, was just read. Mm -hmm. So let's go on then to verses that talk about this changed life. You know, the changed life is a very strong indicator that you are a Christian. 
if you have become a Christian and you don't have a changed life, that's when you really need to question whether you really are a Christian or not. Yeah, and you know, I, I think of Second Corinthians uh, um, chapter five, verse seventeen, where it says, "Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come; the old has gone; the new is here." So I can remember that transformation for myself. Um, you know, where I, I took off my old hat and I put on the new sonship hat. That's right. And for me, it was a very big transformation. I had actually played Christian for many years. My parents had raised me in the church, and I thought that Christianity was about pretending to be a Christian, about knowing things that are unknowable, or at least saying that you know things that are unknowable. So after I realized that it was possible to know that God existed, and I knew that the Bible was reliable, I bowed my knee to Jesus, and immediately I was changed. Up to that point, I'd had a very violent temper. I used to get into fights. You know, I was a very angry person, and God, through His grace, took that immediately away. I never had a problem with temper after that. Many other things, He didn't change, and it's been a long, hard process. I've gone for, I've been a Christian for 33 years now, and things are much, much better, but still wrestling with some areas. But I'm definitely a different person. And 1 John 5, 4 says, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So Jesus sometimes will change things immediately. I know of people who have been cured from alcoholism or drug addiction by getting saved, but others and other areas of their life, it's just a tough road, but through faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, those things do change and we get uh, better and better as we go along towards Christ-likeness. You know, as you say that, Keith, that uh, this item of discussion often comes up when I'm uh, talking with people, and that going off what you said is the misperception that Conversion equals perfection. First John 5.18 says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. The emphasis there being that a Christian is not a perfection. He is a person undergoing a process That's toward right. conforming to be Christ-like. And in that, he does not wish to, he should not wish to keep sinning. Right. And he will sin. Some people have misin misinterpreted that verse and said that you have to be perfect after you become a Christian because it says if you continue to sin, you're not saved. But it's talking about a continued life of sin, not a one-time sin. In fact, uh, the antidote to that verse is this verse, 1 John 2, 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, so John doesn't want new believers to sin. But if anyone does sin, okay, so he's admitting that we are going to sin. And, of course, our experience as Christian indicates that we do sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So Jesus will intercede on our behalf even if we sin. Although, we do have to remember 1 John 5.18 that uh, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. So we don't want to live that old life of sin that we had before we became Christian.
So, you know, Keith, one of the things that comes up frequently when I uh, talk to people about faith is that things should change. God wants to change things in your life to make you more like Jesus. That's right. You know, and, and we all know and we freely admit that we've done things, we've been places, we've seen things, we've touched things, and we've said things that we had no business doing. Yeah. And yeah. all of us have regretted those things. But we have a way of changing that behavior and being forgiven for that. Yeah. That's and, right. you know, entering fully into a repentant state and, and, and asking Christ to come into our lives and change those things. That's right. And if we do, if we ask Jesus to come into our hearts, to change us, he will. He will come into our hearts and he will change us. So if you like a new life, ask Jesus for it. He will exchange your old life, your dead life, for the new life that he gives. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, and we thank you for joining us. Next week, we'll have Kirk Hastings further talking uh, to Kevin Harold, our guest apologist, and uh, to continue this discussion on the deity of Christ. Yeah!